You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Richard Matheson is the author of I Am Legend, The Incredible Shrinking Man, Hell House, Somewhere in Time, What Dreams May Come, A Stir of Echoes, The Short Story Collection, The Shores of Space, The Man Who Has Single-Handedly Helped Create the Myths, Legends, and Folklore of the American 20th Century. His newest novel is Other Kingdoms. Thank you for speaking with me, Richard. Quite welcome. Richard, you know, when I look back on all of your work, what strikes me is you work with the fantastic, you work with the science fictional, you work with the horror and the mystery, but the core, the essence of everything you write is just so human. And I think that's what makes your work so powerful and so I- important to understanding uh, America and American literature. Well, I'm incapable of doing stories about trolls who live under bridges and I could never do the Harry Potter stories. I could never do the Narnia stories. It's just not in me. Everything I write has to be realistic. Well, that's one of the things I think that makes your work so powerful. Now, let me share something with you. Um, My introduction to this kind of literature came when I was about seven years old. My parents forbade me from That's ever... That's when I started writing at seven. <laughs> really? Well, when I was seven years old, my parents, my dad was very strict, and he only wanted me to read realistic literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, no fantasy, no science fiction, nothing, nothing, nothing like that. But he had, they, they had a couch, and behind that couch, um, there was an inset bookshelf and there were books on that shelf. And I would sit there as a kid and pull them out and read them, even though I wasn't supposed to. They were adult books or just not for me. Now, one of the books I pulled out was this book called The Shores of Space. And I remember reading it, opening it up and reading the story called Blood Sun. And my dad and I never got along well. And that story just chilled me, it captured me, it stayed with me my entire life, and I think it really set me down the path of appreciating and understanding the power of this kind of literature. Oh, thank you. Well, the French made an interesting little film of it. I was surprised to see how many times, it's been like, I saw three different uh, things in the IMDb for it. I think more than one was attempted, yeah. The, The only one that I really thought was well done was was the one in France. Now, um, I, I'd like you to talk a, a, about, you started writing and reading during the what is known as the golden age of science fiction. And what interests me is that at that time, the literature was seen as basically stories for boys. And you were a boy, I assume, when you started reading that sort of thing, assuming you did. No, I, when I sold my first short story, about the Newton boy, born a man and woman. I had never read science fiction. I didn't know what it was. You didn't? No, they told me it was science fiction. I thought it was just a, to me, it was just a realistic story. What would happen if, if two ordinary, normal people had a monster for a child? And uh, later on, when I got married and had my own children, with my wife, of course, 
I I was I would have been unable to write it because they wouldn't have believed it. <laughs> it wouldn't have seemed realistic to me anymore. Now now that story was made into a movie, wasn't it? It's alive. Is that the... they made? No no no. It's alive is made from from a, a different story. Someone did make a little a little film of the, of the short story. That's one of the problems I've had in the, in the in the process of of films being made from my stories. They take a, a very short story and they try to make it into a full-length story and it invariably destroys it as witness in the box. Hmm. Now, one of the things I'd like to talk about is the way I think that your stories, um, because they're so human and because you add this really nice element of the fantastic in there, I think what you do really well is to externalize the moral dilemmas, the inner emotions that we can't talk about. The box is a perfect example of, of your ability to externalize and get something out and turn our emotions, our inner emotional conflicts into a plot that is compelling and speaks to us across the ages. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that idea was, uh, I, I stole it from my wife. She was taking a class in some, I forget what, but the teacher presented them with enigmas. What would happen? Would you walk down Broadway naked if it would, if it would help world peace? And then, then one of the ideas was if somebody came to you and said, we'll give you a million dollars, and somebody will die somewhere that you don't know. And I thought, well, that's a great idea for a story, so I stole it. <laughs> Now, one of the things I think that uh, is so interesting uh, about all your work is, like I say, your ability to, I think, you also have a, you're a, a very good American author. Um, you, you know, you really capture the, the spirit of America and I think a particular way that doesn't trivialize America and doesn't seem too uh, patriotic, unpatriotic. You just really capture ordinary people. And I'd like you to talk about that kind of uh, how you approach a story, say, and um, like the box, where you've got to capture these kind of ordinary people in this in this dilemma. Well, I've always, my my taste in fantasy has always been to take one or more people who are very run of the mill, ordinary, normal people, and put one tiny element of fantasy in it, and and then see what happens to the people. Now, um, when you're working this out in prose, I think you have a really nice prose style. Thank it's, you. It's very, very clean and clear. Could you talk about uh, developing that from the time you said you started, wrote your first short story when you're seven? When did you decide to start writing stories professionally? Well, when I got out of college, I decided I was going to make a, a real attempt at selling, selling stories. So I, I, I graduated in June, and in November I sold uh, Born of a Man and Woman to a magazine of fantasy and, and science fiction. So, and that was your first sale now? Yeah, that was my absolute first sale. Wow, that's a, it's such a great landmark. And uh, what's his name? Uh, Tony, Tony Boucher, yeah. He wrote in his introduction that they assumed it had been written by a longtime professional who decided to do something different. And they were very surprised. I was only 23. It was, <clears throat> it was the first story I'd ever sold. You know, um, 
when you're talking about uh, in, in your stories, you know, they have so so much uh, resonance and humanity in them. So I, I'd like you to tell me about how this was your very first story. Uh, had you written others before? And once you sold it, did you just keep writing short stories? And when did you take take flight with the novel? Oh, I had written uh, numerous other stories, but either I had not bothered to submit them or they had been submitted and rejected. That was the first one that sold, actually sold. Now, um, tell me about uh, your when you first start tried to write. What was your first novel? Uh, it was uh, called Someone is Bleeding. It's a suspense novel, suspense mystery. Now, one of the things I think you do really well, it doesn't matter what genre you're writing in, whether it's suspense, mystery, science fiction, supernatural horror, or fantasy, I think your or Western. Or Western. <laughs> your your imprint is really is very, very clear. So I'd like you to talk about how you w- approached each genre. Did you think, okay, now I'm going to write a mystery story? Or did you have the story idea first? Or, or well, the, the idea came first. first. I'm a disbeliever in genres. I, really? I, don't, I don't think there should be. There should just be stories. I mean, uh, I gave a talk once at the Writers Guild and uh, a weekend thing they had up at Lake Arrowhead in which I, I said that there's no such thing as a genuine genre. You, you tell a love story and, and you have it take place on Mars, it becomes science fiction. You, you tell the same love story out west, it becomes a western. You add a murder, and it becomes a murder mystery. This is one thing I think you do well, and it's tough. It's a you. This there aren't many, I think, men writers who who write uh, romances as well as you do that are kind of that appeal to both sexes and and have a more universal feel. So tell tell me your approach about writing a romance. Well, the same. I may have the same approach to every story. I wrote Somewhere in Time, which was called, I had a different title at first. Mm-hmm. And it was the same approach, it's just a, a realistic story of a man who sees a photograph of a 19th century actress, falls in love with her, and somehow manages to contrive to time travel back to meet her. It's the same story. Same approach to the story, though, as, as all the others. I have, I don't, I don't have any new, new approach. I'm, I'm doing one. I'm right working on a novel now. Which I'm converting. I already converted one play, into a novel called, Now You See It. Mm-hmm. And uh, this one is. Which was which, none of my. I, I went into playwriting just as a as a point in time when the theater was beginning to crumble. <laughs> so I haven't had any success with. Well, I can't say that they're doing. Eventually, they're they're working on, make, putting somewhere in time on Broadway, hmm. as a musical. Wow. Which I I, I co-wrote the. The play with the producer Ken Davenport. Mm-hmm. 
and they're they're he's got a composer. He, it, it took so long because he wants it to be exactly right. As a matter of fact, in the beginning, he didn't he he couldn't get the rights to the film, so he wanted to make the the whole play, the whole musical, based on the novel. And then later on, he got the rights to the film. So he made the play based on the film then? It's, it's based on the novel and the film. Hmm. You know, you alluded earlier to uh, the propensity that Hollywood has for taking one of your kind of short stories, which I liken to uh, the American version of Greek myths, where it's kind of a, a morality tale, a powerful human tale that gives us a lesson but has this element of the fantastic to make that lesson absolutely clear. Um, well, it worked perfectly in the Twilight Zone days. Oh, yes. Those are My the... stories were, were really all, they were ideal for the Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about working with Rod Serling and, and, and did you, you know, sit down with him and, and say, here's my latest story, and Charles Beaumont too. Boy, these are this. These yeah, are we both, Chuck Beaumont and I both, we were both brought in at the same time to look at the pilot, mm -hmm. and we were both, we had both had stories published in various of the science fiction and fantasy magazines, and. Uh, we were called, both called in to look at the pilot, and I think I'm not positive, but I think Rod had in mind doing what Roddenberry had in mind, which was to take all the top science fiction writers and and convert their talent into both Twilight Zone and Star Trek. Mm hmm. Well, I, I mean, your episodes of, of The Twilight Zone, I think, are some of the, as I say, some of the classic American myths of the 20th century, it, and from Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. I know. I was very impressed when they had a program on CBS, the history of CBS, mm -hmm. and they mentioned Twilight Zone, and the one thing they showed was my... Nightmare at 20,000 feet. There, occasionally I write something that really strikes a note, like somewhere in time. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I mean, 30 years after it was put in the theater, it's, it is uh, still still alive. It's it's a it's a beautiful story, and I think it, as you say, it captures. I think. Uh, the timeless power of romance and it, and your use of the element of the fantastic, the time travel enables us to see that in a way that just a simple classic love story you cannot see. You can't get that out of something that's purely realistic. And I think what you do is by virtue, you use the elements of the fantastic to actually make a realism that we can understand. Yeah, I, you you know that notice that there's no time, no time machine, time travel machine in the book. No, that's one of the things I love about your work is that 
even though, like I say, um, Little Girl Lost, it's science fiction somewhere, and Time, it has science fiction, you never have any, you never have to resort. Your books are never about the contraptions, the gadgets, no, no, the no. monsters. I mean, you write scary stuff, but it's not about the monsters, even though the mon even that monster on the wing isn't what's scary. It's, the <laughs> it's William Shatner with a gun is scary. Uh, he he'd was wonderful. He'd be scary now with a gun. Yeah, he was great. Did you when you were uh, creating uh, these stories for the Twilight Zone? Did how how much input did you have in terms of writing the screenplay and did you participate in that? I always wrote the screenplay. They always did my screenplay word for word. Wow, now that's very interesting. Um, talk about the process of writing a, a short story and then converting it to a screenplay. Well, I I found it no difficulty at all because my. Uh, when I wrote my stories, I saw them enacted in front of my mind's eye. So it was as if I already saw them as a, as a, as a production, a film production. Mm. So converting it to a script was no difficulty. It's, it, it, well, that's what you describe seeing them in your mind's eye. Is that's kind of what I call the reading experience. When you're really immersed in a story, it's... Uh, better than a movie because you're there, you're the director, as it were. Oh, yeah, sure. I, I even, I mean, I even act out all the parts to make sure the lines mm -hmm. are, are rhythmic. Mm. That's really interesting. Now, so you, you actually, you're, you follow the uh, Robert E. Howard uh, <laughs> school of, of talking while typing? Well, I can't say that. I mean, I, 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 I act them after I've written them. Mm -hmm. I don't. I haven't worked on a typewriter in years. Other kingdoms, I I printed the whole thing. Really. And then had it typed up by my, uh, by Diana Mullen. Uh, let's talk about other kingdoms. This is a fascinating uh, a new novel by you, and it continues your kind of work in the kind of fairy tale in in mythic realm, and, and talks a, a, about the middle kingdoms. So I'd like you to talk about the research you did because there's you list a a, a lot of uh, when you this story seems very realistic, seems gritty, and it seems entirely believable. Uh, and it's told from the point of view of, of a man of your age who's spent his... Yeah, originally I was, I was going to have it written by the 18-year-old, and then I decided I would never be able to do it accurately since I'm not 18 anymore. And I decided I would do it I'd tell it from the standpoint of my, a man my age, who was 82, I believe, in the book. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, talk about, uh, the, t tell me about research. What made you decide to, to research the Middle Kingdoms? Well, I, no, I, it's not something I yearned to do all my life. <laughs> I just happened to be in, I think, I think the Bodhi Tree is the name of the bookstore. I was just looking through the books, and I saw all these books on the Middle Kingdom. And it looked interesting to me, so I bought them all. I wish to God <laughs> I didn't have to buy. I, I bought so many books all through the years. Now I do research, and my wife has a computer. My son has a computer, and I, I, I let I let them look up the research. Mm. It's so much easier. Uh, yeah, I, the the internet has made research easier. 
if somewhat less certain, but if you're researching for fiction, uh, the the background material, if it's slightly fictionalized, <laughs> I suppose that's not a, too much of a problem because you're looking for inspiration more than uh, fact-checking. No, a long time. When I, I, I had, had those books on the Middle Kingdom for years. Mm. And uh, as a matter of fact, I, I had done the research for, for a uh, backpacking adventure. Mm-hmm. Which was eventually published as Hunted Path Reason. And I decided to do that one first because it seemed more saleable to me. Mm-hmm. And then uh, years later, I decided I did the uh, Middle Kingdom one. Well, one of the things I think that's uh, so interesting about, about uh, your, your new novel is that this. Um, well, you've got a writer. He's 82 years old, and he's the author of a of a series of books. Even he considers somewhat cheesy, the Midnight series. Right. And we so talk about uh, creating this kind of the the character in the series. You know, you're writing a book about a book, so you're inventing a book books within a book. Well, I think I probably did that for the sake of humor. I I have as much humor in it as I can as I can get. That's one of the things too that that distinguishes your work too. That you do have a great sense of humor. That these books are are funny, but it never, your humor never undercuts the characters or the situations. No, well, I try to keep the humor realistic too. Hmm. Um. Now, uh, we have uh, our character. His pen name is Arthur Black, and his actual name is Alex White. He ends up in Gatford, and. When he comes to Gatford, he has, you know, there's a lot of uh, classic, uh, what I call Fortean tropes. You're, are you familiar, I'm sure, with Charles Fort? Oh, yeah. The Book of the Dam. This book is an absolute treasure trove of Fortean tropes. Charles Fort could read this and would just have a heyday picking out all the things that he kind of spotted here and there throughout his work. Well, he, he got his from nonfiction, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So, which is, I think, where where you came from. So, let's talk about um, some of the. As a matter of fact, one of the best stories I ever had uh, was not only based on something Charles Ford wrote. It's like he wrote the short story about the, the girls, the poltergeist girls who who run a war. Oh, really? Which war? Uh, oh, that sounds fascinating. Which? What's the title of the story? I think that's the title, Witch War. Witch my, War. My son and I are... Now, there's an example of a, of a story that can be expanded, mm-hmm. which we have expanded into a full-length film, and we haven't, we're on the verge, I hope, of selling it. Wow. So that now, this came out of a Charles Forta uh, story? Yeah, oh, he wrote, yeah, he wrote this story about these psychic girls... Who just sat in a room and imagined battles and destroyed the army, the enemy army, by using imagination? Well, you know, there's a uh, there was a famous uh, effort in Britain. The Britons had a had a whole uh, uh, magic. They fought in World War II with magic to to a certain degree. Dion Fortune. Well, they made a movie on it. Something like. Men who who stared at goats. Men who stared at goats. Yes, that's the the modern version <laughs> with yeah, uh, George. Well, no, I've read about some 
well-known psychic who was able to, uh, what do they call it, distance, long-distance vision or something? Uh, uh, remote viewing. Remote viewing, right. He was able to go over to Russian secret installments and and describe them. I mean, there's, there's so much. There's, if 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 men were really capable of making use of the powers of the mind, which is which are inherent in him, but are not used. Uh, wars would either end completely or else destroy the world. You know, as there's a story for you. <laughs> I like it. Now, as we're sitting here talking, uh, I realize that your character, who in this novel, who is a writer, um, has um, is fine. Who's had a long career as a writer. Is now his final novel is a is, is in a sense a confession that somewhere back in there it was all the all the the fantasy tropes were true, and, and I'm wondering ha, have you had any any experiences that you can't explain, or that couldn't easily be explained? Is there something back in your past? Did did you wander off the path in the woods and and find the leaves rustling when they shouldn't have been? No. <laughs> No, but I, I, when I was writing Somewhere in Time, uh, I forget the original title, I, I, I wrote the first part of it in the, in the uh, Coronado Hotel. Mm -hmm. I, I, convert, I, I put myself in a state of mind where I believed I was really, I even called the hero Richard, because the hotel... Mm -hmm. At that time, I don't think it does anymore, but at that time, it had a, an atmosphere of, of timelessness. Mm. That's so interesting. And I think that's, uh, you know, that that feeling of timelessness is one of the things that permeates your stories. That you do, you never, you put in enough detail into any of your stories to put us there with your characters. And yet, not so much detail that we think, oh, that was when everybody had big hair. That was when what? That was when everybody had big hair, oh. <laughs> or or when everybody was wearing uh, you know uh, narrow shirts. You you give us a sense of when uh, of the characters being in America, but take you kind of take them outside of time. Yeah, well, I made a mistake in I Am Legend mm -hmm. of setting it in the distant future of 1976. <laughs> At the time I wrote it, that was the, I, I wrote it in 1950. Mm -hmm. So that was the distant future. But I learned never to do that again. Uh, let's talk about I Am Legend because the character in there, this character is, you know, he is legend. So talk about turning the last man on Earth into you know an American last man on earth and, and creating this character and creating a novel out of this out of a, a story where it with might have only have one character well I've said this before when I saw Dracula with Bella Lugosi, the idea occurred to me if if one vampire is scary, if the whole world was full of vampires, it should really be scary. <laughs> And that's what I did. 
Uh, of course, I had to make it realistic by having having it caused by by, by man-made weather aberrations. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when you when you uh, created this character and, and created this world around him, talk about uh, creating. Oh, incidentally, the re- one way I hold on to realism is the house of every one of my character is the house I'm living in at that time. Oh, really? So what... Yeah, the, uh, what dreams may come, it takes place in this house. Oh, really? Okay. I Am Legend takes place in Gardena, the house we lived in. Wow, Gardena. I lived in Gardena. I didn't, I didn't really know what to do with uh, Hell House. Mm-hmm until we went to the Hearst Castle ones. And I thought, well, this is perfect. And I bought books with photographs of all the rooms, and I, I described those rooms. Very interesting. I have to have a, a realistic setting. Well, that's, I think, what makes your, your books and your stories so, uh, why they create such a strong impression and a lasting impression because you do focus on on this on the realistic but yet like i say you know how to include the fantastic so now you don't always include the fantastic in your westerns and in your your suspense stories that... no one western i did mm-hmm. i had an indian monster <laughs> which one now i haven't read that one it's called shadow on the sun now well talk about uh creating a these kind of, the ones that, that don't have monsters. And I'm thinking, in particular, I, well, actually, I suppose the story Duel does have a monster. And that was a story that I thought that was very effectively turned into a movie. That, that, yeah, oh, brilliantly so. Mm. Stephen really did a wonderful job. They didn't... I remember the producer told me that, well, they stuck me with some young hotshot director. Really? Because he had done nothing in particular. Well, he'd done, I think he'd done maybe some episodes of Columbo that time. Yeah, that's about it. Mm. Well, I remember seeing that when I was a kid, and that just knocked my socks off. Yeah, no, it was brilliantly done. uh, What's his name? Uh, Dennis Weaver? Yeah, he was wonderful. Well, one of the things I think that, that makes that story so good is, again, like many of your stories, it has a monster, but it's a, a, and an element is in a sense of the fantastic. The trucker is clearly something beyond any of our experiences. Right. Even in the day, even these days of road rage, there's not, nobody quite like him. I know my, our older daughter used to live across the street from some, some man who was the editor of a, of a, trucking magazine. Really? And they were enraged by it. Really? I, well, I, can, I guess I can imagine well, that. I was, I was hinting that truck drivers are nuts. Well, <laughs> your truck driver, I, you know, he's almost, it's, I think, in a sense that, though that story doesn't have a, an element of the fantastic in that, that he's not a monster, he has the same effect as Godzilla or anything else, I think more frightening by virtue of the realism. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I I thought I, I, I was going metaphorically insane when I wrote that. So his, the, the hero's name was Man, M-A-N-N. Well, and now the, that's... And the driver's name 
was was Keller, which is short for killer. <laughs> of course. Now, fortunately, nobody noticed. <laughs> well, with your uh, latest novel, Other Kingdoms, uh, one of the things I, I think that's very interesting in there is this uh, the sen- the character of of Magda, and, and I think this whole thing really functions perfectly in the way that fairy tales, which were ri- are, were originally conceived to function as uh, warning stories, things not to do. Yeah. And one of the things you don't do, especially if you're a man, is piss off a beautiful woman. <laughs> so talk about in, endangering yourself with yeah, well, women. Well, probably was, I mean, I had, had her explain what witchcraft Wicca really is. Mm-hmm. And it is a very, almost, almost benign. She, unfortunately, she did not turn out to be benign because she had access to powers mm-hmm. that she used against the hero. Well, let, let's just, I, rather than talk about the plot, what I'd like to talk about is your sense of creating these characters. We have Magda, we have Alex, and, and we have... Um, Ruth Anya. Ruth Anya. So talk about this kind of... Uh, That's my wife's name, Ruth Ann. I, I, oh, I noticed that. I don't think I didn't notice that. Uh, talk about creating uh, this love triangle where, and this is, I think, a bit unusual for you, where two of the corners are actually uh, fantastic. I guess so. I never thought of it that way. Well, I, so when you, when you uh, chose to do this, um, this gives lets you take things a little further out, I think, than than normally. But what I like is that you keep us grounded by keeping us by taking um, witchcraft and bringing it back to the ground to Wicca and then to really just a, basically a religion. And I, you know, really, I think that's what a lot of your work is about: is a, about religion or our kind of spiritual relation to the world around us and. For well, example. there's a whole section in the book where I I I explained through the through Ruthania's father what my belief is mm-hmm. in uh, the meaning of life mm. and the, the and the, the realism of passing on and I, I I've written I've had. Several books published with, with uh, straight metaphysics, mm-hmm. the path in particular. Mm-hmm. This this book did seem to me to be uh, the most personal of your works that I've that I've read. It really seemed to be you speaking more closer, very close to the heart. Did, was this more difficult to write because of that? No, because I'm always in that frame of mind when I write the book. Mm. When I wrote Somewhere in Time, Bid Time Return. My title was, at the time, And Love Most Sweet, which is a pretty drippy title. But the the publisher came up with, uh, And Bid Time Return, the good old Shakespeare, you can always get a quote from him. Well, like, like you, he dealt in the fantastic and in the human. And that's what I think this book... This book is about human nature, humans in nature, humans as nature, and the nature in humans. It's a 
it's looking at ourselves in in terms of nature and, and finding ourselves there and finding uh, the, our own nature within our human existence. Yeah, having read all these research books about the Middle Kingdom, it seems clear to me that it, it really exists. Where it exists, I don't know. It may be in a different dimension, but it does exist. There are, we use the word fairy, it's gotten, fairy has gotten a, a bad connotation. Not spelled as you spell it, though. No, no, that's, a, I, 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 the Middle Kingdom books, I think, all spell them that way. Mm -hmm. So tell us, uh, from your research, what did you find the, the, the Middle Kingdom to be? It's all definitely part of nature. They're, they're nature creatures. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I mean, there was, uh, I have a lot of explanations in there of how you know they're around, what their powers are. Shape-shifting. The rustling yeah, they seem of the to leaves. Be able, uh, that would indicate that they were in, a, in another dimension, in another physical setting of life, mm -hmm. like ghosts, I believe that they exist too. Well, now this is really interesting because I think that uh, a lot of people uh, believe that those that those of us who have left this life still, we you can still have access to them in some form, some way, well, somehow. Some of them, the majority of them are what I would call earthbound. I have a novel called Earthbound, too, in that they, they shouldn't be hanging around what they do anyway, because they have a lot of them who were violently murdered or, or committed suicide. Suicide is, is among the worst faults we can possibly have. You know, I was just talking with somebody today about uh, physician-assisted suicide. I think that, I mean... I can understand it when someone is in terrible pain, mm -hmm. in terrible mental agony, that they just don't want to go on living. And yet, we're all, I think, we're all supposed to go at a certain time. Mm. And if we supersede that, uh, we're making a mistake. And that's when we become earthbound. We're earthbound until the time, generally speaking, until the time when we're supposed to go anyway. Then they, then maybe they reevaluate whoever they are. Whoever they are, you know. Uh, one of the things that I think uh, interests me uh, about your work is, is this idea of um, how each of us relates to the other. In that, I think to a certain extent, though, sometimes the way you write your work, it almost seems that two people sitting in the same room together, as are you and I, might, in some essences, just be might as well be ghosts. Maybe we are. <laughs> no, in terms of uh, just the, the ability to um, understand the, the other person's perception. Yeah, I was, I was requested... I, I, my book, The, the Path... It takes most of the material from Harold Percival's book, uh, Thinking and Destiny. Mm -hmm. And he wrote an enormous volume on ghosts. There's so many different kinds that it would, it would make your head spin. 
I didn't I didn't think I had the wherewithal mentally or physically to rewrite it on a, as I did. I mean in the path it's most of the facts and the direct quotations mm -hmm. are from the early part of his book mm -hmm. somewhere thinking and destiny which to me is is the, is the metaphysical book hmm. of all time okay harold percival harold w percival yeah well this is really interesting um when did you discover this book and in the bodhi tree i just ran a, you know uh, it was one of those things you think how come i, I took that out of the shelf why did, i i i i had evolved my own my own uh, theory of what life was, what, what it all meant, how it worked, telepathy, ghosts, death. And I had, I had worked out my own system after reading dozens, maybe hundreds of books. And I finally reached the point where I had, a, I had it worked out into a, a specific, uh, what's the word? system, yeah. And then I read his book, and he not only had everything I had spent years evolving, but a hundred other things as well. Now, um, as a, a writer working in, in the fantastic... So I would suggest that anybody who, mm -hmm. who looks at your website get a copy of, of uh, Thinking and Destiny. Thinking and Destiny, Harold W. Percival. Yeah, they can get it from the Word Foundation, which is in New York somewhere. Well, we can find that and put it on the web and put a link to it. I'm yeah, sure they're it's, there. So I mean, it's 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 difficult to understand, not because it's badly written, it's, it's brilliantly written, mm -hmm. clear as a bell, but the bell is very very confusing. <laughs> well, life is not so easy to understand either, though. I think one of the things that your work does is your stories at you know at their best in, in your novels help really help us feel get a grasp around things by taking some of the abstract ideas that you have and the characters that you have and turning them rather than uh, writing just some of the straight philosophy or some of the ideas you turn those ideas into plots and allow us through seeing things happen. Well, that's what I've been trying to do, whether consciously or, or, or unconsciously, you know, mm -hmm. sp spreading the truth. Well, you know, what's interesting is that... I was raised as a Christian scientist, and my wife thinks this is all left over from Christian science, but it's, it goes a lot further, I think. Interesting. I was my grandmother was a Christian scientist as well. So we had to, we had all the Mary Baker Eddy books. Did you read the Ma Mary Baker Eddy's work? Are you well? When I was a Christian scientist, we used to read the Bible every day. You, you did the what they called the lesson. You'd read the Bible section, and you'd read her interpretation of it. That's right. All right. Yeah, my grandmother had all those books with the little metal bookmarks. Yeah, after I had a stroke. I was in the rehab place, and I started writing a short story about Mary Baker Eddy. Really? I, I never, no, nobody ever, 
I'm not sure I ever had it submitted, but I mean, it's, it's very well done, but uh, not at all true. I'm, I'm sure I made up the whole thing. Well, I'm not so sure myself, to tell the truth. I think you have a way of your fiction um, getting at, and that's, again, what I think your fiction does best, is that it gets at the truth by using by telling us a story. I think the character is, is sound. Mm -hmm. I think she was just as I pictured her. But the physical circumstances, was, the whole thing is based on her going to appear at a church being opened somewhere in upper New York, her, her speaking to the congregation, and then going back, going back to Boston. I have no idea why I wrote it. Do you, do you still have it? Somewhere. I, I, what I don't have is an is a, a adequate filing system. <laughs> no, easier said than done in my experience. Yeah, this, this is my office here, right here. You're in my office right here. Well, it looks, uh, it, I can tell you, it's neater than mine. <laughs> yeah, this chair, my son told me about it. It's, it's, it's a marvelous, marvelous piece of equipment. Technology is, is, is wonderful when it's uh, adapted to the, to the uses of humans. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I think that you talk about well, though, is, is what happens, you know, how technology is best used by humans and how it sometimes uses humans as well. Well, I, didn't go, I don't go as far as Ray does. I think Bradbury was always negative about technological advancements. Mm-hmm. Now there's a case we talk about genres. Mm -hmm. He's uh, he's like Mr. Science Fiction, and yet, just because his stories are on Mars, doesn't make them science fiction. Oh no, I think he wrote about the American suburbs. He just moved them to Mars because he could. Then he, once he moved them to Mars, he could do whatever the heck he wanted with them. Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> just, he just oh. moved Covina to uh, <laughs> Covina, California, to uh, the plains of Mars, and said, uh, "Welcome, that's, neighbors." That's, that's what that's what uh, Rod Serling did. He wanted to make political commentary, so he created the Twilight Zone. He was having nothing but trouble trying to get his political points of view across on television. I think there's a famous quote where he said he could have a Martian and a Venusian say what he couldn't have a Republican and a Democrat say. Yeah. <laughs> and make the same point quite handily. You know, um, one of the things I think is interesting is I'd like you to talk about the, the um, presence of fear in your books. Because your books have fear and they have horror and they have terror. They never have anything gross. I mean, it's never like you're not, you're not an anatomical horror writer. No, I, I don't. Well, the very word horror, as you probably know, mm -hmm. is like anathema to me. What what do you call your works that are, I think, uh, fear te Terror is all right. Terror. So you're, you're a terror writer. Yeah. All right. Well, I like that idea. So talk about um, creating terror and keeping it out of the horror genre, because I think you do that very well. Well, it's just in, in creating a realistic situation where the elements of menace are realistic 
they become frightening. You know, um, when when we read, uh, there are some. This book, uh, your newest book, Other Kingdoms, has some very nice pieces of terror. And I think one thing you do very well is to use dreams. And I'd like you to talk about uh, the the presence of dreams across all of your work. I'm thinking, you know, from what dreams may come all the way to to other kingdoms. Where well, what dreams may come is merely uh, a statement that what happens to us after we pass on is is uh, pertinent to the way we have lived and the way we think. That that my my one favorite logo I don't know I think I got it I keep thinking I got it from some book a million years ago but it is that what you think becomes your world I think and that it, summarizes your work quite well yeah oh I think it's it's very true too at every level which means that we're, we'd be well advised to think good thoughts and realistic thoughts as well. Realistic thoughts, yeah. Could you talk uh, about, um, you know, you said you when you first wrote Born of Man and Woman that you hadn't read science fiction. Did you read science fiction afterwards? Oh, and sure. I went out and got every anthology I could. I mean, that's, I had originally wrote an introduction to a collection of stories by Henry Kuttner, who I knew personally. What a great writer, boy. Uh, yeah. I'm sure I read a lot of his stories. But uh, so so many of these books blended in my mind. Mm -hmm. yeah, he was, he, as a matter of fact, I think I, I may have dedicated Iron Legend to him. When you, when you, uh, after you read a, a bunch of science fiction, did you want to, did you ever think, I'm going to write some, you know, space stories or... Well, I I, I thought uh, since I had four children to support, I knew I better stick to science fiction, whether I understood it or not. Is that you came into the field when it was young, and when the preponderance of the literary establishment considered it as a set stories for boys, essentially. Yeah, no doubt. And, and, but I think that two things have happened. Um, one is that the literature itself has matured, but also I think our perception of this kind of literature has matured, and, and that we've realized that these stories for boys are the same stories that people told around campfires to, to keep themselves from being terrorized by the night and the sounds they yeah. And that these are these kind of stories serve an important well, I mean, function in our when, culture. When I went into science fiction writing, Ray Bradbury was in full swing, a real literary literary figure. Arthur C. Clarke wrote some wonderful stuff. The there nine some, billion there, names of God. There were some really marvelous writers in that period. Jerome Bixby. Well, I didn't know it at the time. Hmm. Well, now we seem we I think we have a better feel, and the the for a long time, uh, there was a, you know, a feeling that 
any kind of work that included, you know, an element of the fantastic by virtue of having that element of the fantastic lost its its grip on being a, an actual piece of literature. Oh, I think the critics were a long way from accepting it as a valuable and a valid form of literature. I, well, I think they it's much more accepted now. Oh, yeah, it is. So talk about um, when you were writing it and what you were writing was going to become kind of part of the canon, I think, uh, of, of what is now an accepted pe- form of literature, that, you know, the, the, first, the first level of this kind of work that was created. And I think it's a very American piece of literature. I mean, we yeah, have... that's probably true, yeah. Twain... Had had some of that stuff going on in his work, you know, the Connecticut Arthur and King, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, right. is and nothing if not fantasy. Uh, so talk about, um, you know, in a sense, you were pursuing the the, the long. Well, for that time, I think his great classic. What is it about the boy and Jim on the river? Mm-hmm. That that was sort of fantasy at that time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm Huckleberry Finn. I mean, it, it wasn't fantasy to him. It was what realism should be, mm-hmm. but w- wasn't at the time. I, I exactly get what you mean, and I think that's, in a sense, you're, you pursued the same kind of path of creating, uh, by heightening reality and adding elements of fantasy. Well, the only time I ever, I, 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 I may have done it without knowing, I did the story about the guy the newspaper reporter who goes to review a play, a children's play, and the star of it is the Martian. And the Martian is very unhappy. He's lost his family. He's forced to do plays that are beneath him. This is fan. This is a really And, and the, the reporter takes note of all this mm-hmm. and writes a scathing denunciation of the whole process. And then they won't print it because it's too outrageous. Well, now, uh, we have a, a, a upcoming movie that's just about to come out based on another one of your stories, Real Steel. Oh, yeah. Tell us about creating the story and how did you have a, a hand in the screenplay? Not in Real Steel, no. I wrote the original Twilight Zone, the one that oh, oh, Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin. Yeah, he was excellent. One of my favorite Twilight Zones. I guess this man who published the story, mm-hmm. or who produced the film, he optioned the story, and then they had a screenplay written, and Steven Spielberg called me. They sent me a copy of the script and said, he said, is it, is it too much like your... Are there too many elements in it that are like your Twilight Zone? And I called and said, yes, there, there are a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know. So they, they gave you, so somebody came up with the story, they thought it was original, and then they found out, oh, wait, this has been done before by uh, Richard Matheson on uh, the Twilight Zone. I think, that, I mean, what they were looking for was dissimilarities. Mm-hmm. But there are enough so that... The, whether they came up with anything creative, I don't know. Well, I'm sure we'll find out. Now, uh, Richard, you said you're working on a new novel. Can you tell us a little bit of what it's about and, and what inspires you to write it right now? 
Well, again, it's based on a play. I don't know, even know if it'll work. It's it's it's, it's almost nonfiction. Hmm. It's about my my early family, my father, my mother, my brother, my sister, my uncles and aunts and cousins. And it's set in in uh, the time their time. Yeah. So does it have an element of the fantastic in it, or is it just a, a straightforward? Well, the only thing, that, the first line of the novel is, uh, the strangeness about this story is that it never happened. Uh, so it's fiction about your non-fictional family. Uh, you could say that, yeah. As it's what I, what I thought, thought would be good if, if I had things had actually been said which were never said. So you kind of, now this is an interesting concept. In a sense, you've uh, gone in and edited your family history and maybe pulled some ghosts out of your past and brought them to life in the past. Yeah, I had them, I had them discuss things that were never discussed all, uh, all on an afternoon. Well, this is, I think, the essence of much of your work is to externalize things that are not talked about. I think that's the great power of what you what you do is to. Well, I hope it works. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to work. Well, I'm sure we'll find out, and I look forward to finding out. <laughs> I've been. Well, I'm glad you like the other kingdoms. It was a it's a wonderful book. I've been speaking with Richard Matheson. His new novel is Other Kingdoms. Thank you for speaking with me, Richard. You're quite welcome. I enjoyed it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.